Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, our award-winning weekly podcast. Please visit womenover70.com and consider joining Aging Reimagined Circle, our sustaining membership fund, so we may continue to inspire women to age with curiosity, courage, and creativity. Members enjoy monthly programming and probing discussions, and we hope to see you there. And today we are we are delighted to be talking with Carol Marine. Carol, age 75, has worked in hard news and TV and print media for 50 years. She reported for National CBS News and 60 Minutes 1 and 2. It's true that you are esteemed for investigative reporting that results in resulted in breakthrough stories in really high-profile areas such as politics, public corruption, and organized crime. And then in 2002, Carol repurposed her career to form an independent documentary company with her colleague Don Bosley, Maureen Corbin Productions, which is housed at DePaul University. And for the past eight years, Carol has directed the DePaul Center for Journalism Integrity and Excellence, where she also teaches a two-quarter-long course in advanced reporting. And over the years, Carol's learned the art of being nimble while navigating commitments and priorities in her personal and professional life. So welcome, Carol, to Women Over 70. We are so happy and honored to be with you today. And we want to thank Jill Stewart, uh, also a Women Over 70 guest and another DePaul uh, person, for connecting us with you. So, you know, the your work has had such tremendous social impact over the years, and and it's well documented. So, let's let's kind of focus on the last you know two decades. And um, I want to start with acknowledging that you have received many many new awards and recognitions. And I know that's not something that you would be likely to bring up yourself. So, I just to to note that you've received three Peabodys, two National Emmys the Gracie Award, the George Polk Award in Journalism, and in October 2023, readers of Axios Chicago named you as Chicago's all-time best news anchor. Retired. 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 Retired news anchor. Yes. Uh, that's true. Um, but I, I'm just, I'm curious, what are these, what do these awards and recognitions mean to you? What do they represent for you? You know they're wonderful, and um, and I'm proud of them. And yet, what I tell our students at DePaul is that um, you know you're you're only as good as your last newscast. Um, you can't turn them into earrings. Um, you can put them on a shelf. I and you know and sometimes because because I've been on TV for so long, if somebody invites me to give a speech. They almost feel duty bound to, to give me an award. So I had stacks of plaques from wonderful organizations, bar associations, things like that. But it was really just a, a kindness, but you can't put that stuff on your wall. You can't you can't live off those things. Uh, you have to somewhere please yourself every day if you can with the quality of your work, but not get to to carry it away with the stuff, because mm. as as one of the wonderful women who who um, does all of the custodial work at DePaul said to me, because I started, I had to get rid of some stuff, and she said, "Don't you have anyone who loves you?" 
don't they want these things? <laughs> My kids don't want these. Um, they're, they are wonderful, but at some point they go in a closet and then at some point, you know, they get kind of sent to the, um, the dust heap of history. <laughs> well, you can take a picture of them. Exactly. <laughs> so let, tell us about your, your, the mission of DePaul Center for Journalism, Integrity, and Excellence. And it, it has a strong ethical fo footprint, which I know is, is from you. Um, tell us, how did this, how did this come about and why the focus on ethics? So, um, for the longest time, Don Mosley and I, who is my longtime producer and, and, greatest colleague. Um, and I had an office at DePaul, and we took students who worked as our interns on our film projects and our journalism projects. And then Father Dennis Holtschneider, who was the president of DePaul for a long time, and Sal McGannum, who is now the provost and was the dean, said, um, we want to further fortify what we already do in terms of ethical commitments, and we'd like to start a center for journalism, and we'd like you and Don to figure out how you'd configure it. And so with that sort of direction and, and, and great invitation, we created a kind of a three-headed thing where we teach an advanced reporting course for only those students who are just about to jump into the profession. So they're graduate students, they're seniors mostly, and they're right on the cusp. And we only take a few and they need to apply. They they can't just enroll because we want to make sure that that we can give them the success that they seek. And then the other part of it is we bring major journalists to DePaul to our students, but and also to the larger community and and kind of pay attention to our broader constituency. And then we teach ethics. We try to ethically problem solve as often as we can during that quarter to give our students a sense of what it's going to be like when they're out on the street, they have 30 seconds to make a decision, not a class period to debate it, but that these things happen. Mm -hmm. Does a police officer ask for your notes? Do you say no? Do you, you know, what do you do when um, someone grants you an interview and then says, "Never mind, I've changed my mind? And so it's it's been really invigorating. It's been a great way of paying it forward. And our students, and this just happened last night, um, every quarter our students produce a story that I deliver to Channel 11 PBS. And they produce it from the ground up, idea to research to, you know, writing, editing, interviewing, all those things. And we put it on the air as we did last night, it was on county jails, ban on uh, drug-infected paper, and uh, they get a production credit for it before they graduate. So they have something that's tangible that says, you know, I've already worked in major media. It's <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. And, and, and with regard to ethics, I, I assume you share some of your own stories about ethical dilemmas or situations that you've dealt with. Do you share those with your students? Always. And yes. could you share a couple with us? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that, that we often confront um, are, and, and this was a really profound one, 
We had a great story on public corruption in Chicago involving a very powerful person. And um, a Cook County judge, off the record, told me about being advised that he was going to have to throw a case, throw a murder case, because, you know, the person who helped him get to the bench uh, wanted that done. And I had that information, but it was off the record. And he told me only when he died could I say his name, say what happened. And I'm working for 60 Minutes, and we're doing a story on that whole arena of corruption, including the person who wanted him to throw the case. And I said the judge, you know, won't uh, won't let won't let me out of that. Uh, he's he's recorded a tape that if I get uh, brought into court, I can play. But short of that, I can't run it on the air. And our lawyer was a wonderful lawyer at CBS, and he said, well, what if we got the judge to go to Indiana with you where you could record him um, without, you know, secretly, because Indiana has um, only one party consent, not two party like Illinois, and we can get the judge on the record. And I said, you know, nobody wants this story more, more badly than I do, but I can't do that to someone who trusted me. I can't. I'd rather lose a story than break an oath. And it's and it was you know it, it wasn't even a hard decision frankly because I just knew in my gut it couldn't couldn't do it. And those are the kinds of things we try to tell our students that no great story is worth doing real damage to a human being who trusted you. That's miserable. And wow. Now, oh, wait, I said we we're going to cover the last two decades, but let's let's just go way back in time. Where did you get this thirst, this this passion for journalism and report, investigative reporting? My parents, I'm a blue collar kid, a proud blue collar kid. Uh, my dad was um, a butcher, a bartender, a political organizer. He was a Republican. My mother uh, worked in a factory. Uh, she was a devout Catholic and Democrat, and we didn't have a lot of money. But the money we had every day brought in all four Chicago newspapers, because there were four at the time, the Tribune, the Daily News, the Sun-Times of Chicago Today. And then my father would buy a fifth that came out weekly, the National Observer. And we would fight every night, my dad and I, over who got the Daily News first, because whoever got that first got the Mike Royko column first. <laughs> and so, and then we'd sit at the dinner table in the kitchen, and my parents would argue, Catholic, Protestant, Republican, Democrat. I mean, I had a, a perfect debate stage every night, and the love of the news, the love of the writing, my dad would say to me, my nickname is Annie, Annie, look at the cover of the Sun-Times. It says that the murder victim was 46. Look at the trib. It says the victim was 64. Who do you believe? Mm -hmm. you no, know, sometimes there are mistakes, honest mistakes that are made that aren't just 
there to pervert the journalism. They're just people working hard and fast. And I learned a lot of lessons at the kitchen table as a kid. And it sounds like you really grew up being comfortable with debate, with, with different views and expressions. I did. I was on the debate team in high school. I was on the debate team in college. So I was comfortable with debate. That's great. Gail, do you have, have something at this point? Not at this point. I'm okay. Um, you mentioned to me, Carol, when we talked earlier about that the challenges of training new journalists in this current political climate. Say more about that. What what are those challenges like? Well, so much has changed. You know, when we started this Center for Journalism, Integrity, and Excellence, it was 2016. It was right after, or right in the midst of the uh, the Trump campaign and the the intensity of so-called fake news, and it, there was a, a real need in the view of DePaul and, and us to try to explain to our students that all the news isn't fake and partisan news is not necessarily news. It's one side, another side. Uh, and so part of it was addressing that. Our students come out of a time, and COVID hasn't helped it, where they believe that there's no such thing as objectivity. Fail value arcane concept. And while I can agree with them that absolute objectivity does not exist, but our attempts to be fair and as objective as we can should prevail, for many of them, they feel that they need to tell their own truths, their own belief. And one of the things that Don and I do in class is say, that's fine. We're not your parents. You go forth and believe and do what you choose to believe and do. But in our class, you're not going to do that. Mm. Our class, the standards for that class, are it's other people's story. You're not going to get in the way of other people's mm. story. You're going to try to handle their story with care, yes, with some of your own personal experiences uh, to inform you, but our job is not to cry along with the person who's crying because they're not equivalent. That person's sorrow is something we are reporting on. And so our job is to somehow let their story breathe. And then when it's over, get in the car or get in the house, we can cry our own tears later. But for us, the story is to really help uh, the world know someone else's truth. Mm. What kind of, um, but what do the, your students envision? What kind of journalism do they envision? Many of them envision community journalism, which is really interesting, local and community. Um, they are very sensitive to the fact that there are news deserts all over the United States, that the um, constriction of, of media companies is profound. There, you know, there are neighborhoods on the south, far south side. They've got nobody covering the news. And so and a lot of not-for-profits are now beginning to try to fill that gap um, or to at least address it in some way. So they're aware that many of their communities are not well covered. Um, and in our students, I hasten to say, at DePaul, and, and you two know this very well, DePaul is one of those 
phenomenal institutions that back at in at the turn of in the 19th century, 20th century, there were, we, we had no quota on Jews at DePaul. University of Chicago did, Loyola did, some of the other, you know, the big ones did. We didn't. Um, DePaul is a blue-collar school. Many of our students, even today, are first generation to go to college. And so there are our students, by and large, are wealthy. Uh, their parents are scraping and saving and borrowing to get their kids to school. And those kids are working, I don't know how many jobs, while they're going to our classes. So they have a, a kind of granular commitment and sense of, of the urban landscape, but they also are aware of uh, many are, are Hispanic, Black. At DePaul, you got everything, not just Catholic, but atheist, mm-hmm. you know, Protestant, Jewish. We're a, we're a melting pot, and, and in a good way, because I think that's part of their education every bit as much as what they get from us in a classroom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Carol, what, what's, the fa- what's your favorite type of reporting that you do? There's, I just missed what, that. What's your favorite type of reporting that you do? There's, I know you've done many different types of reporting, and I'm just curious to know what resonates with you the most. Um, it, it, there's multiple answer, Gail. Public corruption, because in, in Chicago and in the United States and in the world, politics and money and organized crime end up being a kind of a lethal weave often. So done an awful lot on public corruption. Um, Operation Gambat, the um, buying and selling of, of uh, judgeships and uh, contracts and, uh, you know, city hall machinations. Uh, organized crime, I mean, the classic organized crime, done an awful lot on that. But along the way, so we've done street gangs and crime and heroin heroin markets going all the way to Bangkok. I was in Afghanistan right after 9-11 because I was in actually the fall of a building in 9-11. And all of those contribute to, you know, sort of a great sense of the reporting I love. But I also love the reporting that tests different kinds of writing. We've done documentaries on the facially disfigured at a time a long time ago, when you wouldn't see a melted face mm-hmm. on television, mm-hmm. um, and and we follow many of these stories again and again and again over ten years, twenty years, thirty years. So we, Don and I, have gone back to our these same themes again and again because each time we know a little more going in and we learn a little more coming out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So you're a documentary company. Thank you. Uh, tell us more about that and how do how do people find you? Well, it folded. We folded it. Um, after um, we left CBS Network, for five years we housed ourselves at DePaul and did, uh, we produced um, a documentary on 
the priesthood and the older men who were going to the Catholic priesthood right after the the major scandal that was a literally a come to Jesus moment in Texas for the bishops and the pedophile scandal. Um, we've done documentary a documentary on a failing school on the south side of Chicago and forgive me the west side of Chicago and how they pull themselves into um, sets that no one believed was possible. Uh, so we did those things. One of the things we learned, learned a lot about documentaries, and our students will say, I want to, I'm going to documentaries. And we say, oh, that's great. Where are you going to run it? Because there's very little real estate available to put your documentary. Mm-hmm. You know, there there aren't, the major networks don't do them particularly anymore. Um, and documentary companies, documentary outlets, Netflix, those, they've got teams of people doing them. They reject most of them. So getting funding for them is really tricky. Um, getting uh, a space to air them, very tricky. So it was an education for us. And uh, at the end of it, uh, NBC called us and said, all right, you quit back in 1997. That management's gone. Will you come back and be the political editor? Mm-hmm. And we said, yes. And uh, Chicago Tonight PBS called. One of the things I learned um, along the way was I never wanted to work for one company alone any longer. Mm-hmm. So we worked we did work for three different outlets, including the Chicago Sun-Times, which for me, who knew I would end up being a newspaper columnist in at sort of the tail end of a television career. That usually doesn't happen, but it did. Yes. You know, I've, um, I've seen you at two events recently and uh, that focused on women's, women's rights. And one was on the, focused on the Me Too movement, where you interviewed uh, the reporter who helped break the story about Harvey oh, Weinstein. Yeah. And the other was uh, about, it was um, it was out to Paul and it was, uh, you were in the audience and there was the, it was the pa- uh, panel with the Janes, the original Janes, the underground. Oh, God. Oh my God. Yeah. And I just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering uh, how you, how you've used your platform or what, what your involvement is in, um, highlighting issues that are significant for women? The, you know, I believe, and, and this has been a tricky part, this is part of the ethical mind. For as long as I've been a reporter, uh, in order to do reporting and not take a side, but let the sides speak their their values, their oppositions, I have recused myself. I don't sign petitions. I don't give uh, political contributions. I give um, I, I give this little speech to students. Said for the privilege, the privilege of being a reporter, you give up some of your normal rights as a citizen. In my view, just in my view, that um, you have to persuade people that you can listen to them and not let your stuff get in their way. 
long ago, and you remember, and I'm trying to remember, Ryan White. Remember Ryan White in Kokomo, Indiana, one of the first AIDS kids? He had AIDS, and he was thrown out of his school, and no one wanted to go near him. They thought he was going to infect them just by looking at them. And around that time, someone asked if I would join um, uh, a board, the Ryan White Foundation, to um, to fight against this kind of AIDS. I declined. And the reason I declined was I still wanted to be able to go to Kokomo, Indiana, and sit down in somebody's living room and listen to their fears and listen to their beliefs. And and so I take what some people might think is kind of an extreme point of view in terms of um, what I think is ethical due diligence. Um, and we're all different, and I, I respect my colleagues who do it a different way, but that's how I do it. So I don't march. I don't sign petitions. Um, and and I guess now I could, except I'm still delivering our student stories to PBS Channel 11, and I never want to um, give them difficulty by coming on as a perceived partisan. Um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk. Uh, you've been a high-profile media person for all these many years, and you have uh, your mother, and uh, you have a family. And you said something to me when we were when we had our our pre-conversation about what it's like to what you've learned about being nimble, about mm -hmm. navigating the the personal and the professional. What have you learned about that? What would, what advice do you have to impart to others? Being nimble is a lot like sausage making. It isn't pretty. It, <laughs> you know, and it's 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 never utterly successful at all. I have two sons. Uh, Joshua is uh, my older son, who will be 38 in December. Gideon, my younger son, who is 36. Josh uh, it's married uh, and has a gorgeous baby boy, third, three or three years old, summer grandma. Uh, and my younger son, Gideon, is profoundly physically and mentally handicapped. And so he's in residence at a phenomenal Catholic residence, Mr. Cordia in Chicago. And, and this gets Catherine to this ethical part again. There, I would get calls from time to time saying, we, we know you've got a son at Misericordia. You know, we know you have a son with seizure disorders, cerebral palsy, all those things. And we um, want you to do the story involving our son, our kid, our campaign to get more programs. And I explained to him, I can't. Because I can't use my reporting or even even the possibility that I would be an indirect beneficiary of the pressure that that reporting might put on institutions. But I can direct you to really good reporters mm -hmm. who really know how to do this, and I can assure you that they're trustworthy and honorable. Uh, so my kids, I Joshua, when, um, when he was a little boy, we're walking down Armitage Avenue, and somebody 
drove by in a car and yelled something obscene at me. And he he sort of heard it, he sort of didn't. He said, Mom, do, do those people know us? And I said, you know, Josh, they think they do. And he said, what did they say? You know, we're not going to worry about it. Um, but I always wanted to keep my boys in a normal frame. And and that was as as much a goal of mine as anything. I, I was on, somebody did an interview with me from an airline magazine, and I was on the cover, and it was on the dining room table. And Josh, who was then about six, picked it up and looked at me, went over to our babysitter and said, Claudette, look, it's Carol Marine. <laughs> and it wasn't mom, because I was mom in standing in, in, in the dining room, that was the other, you know, piece of me. And he could make a distinction. And I felt really pretty good about that, that that wasn't his mother. That was what I do when I go to work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so is it, was it difficult all those years navigating being a woman, having a family, Doing being in a career that was so demanding as yours was, you know, our our listeners, I know, would love to hear how how did you manage all of that, or can you give them any clues for managing it? You know, I was younger. Let's just start there. I was younger. Yeah. There was a time I was anchoring the ten o'clock news, the the six and the ten o'clock news and doing reporting, and my dad was dying, and he was at Edmonston Hospital. My sister Judy, who was, you know, my rock of Gibraltar, she and my mother would, um, I would leave, I'd get home about 11, I'd sleep until about 4, I'd, I'd get stuff ready for school for the boys, and then I'd get in the car and go to Edmonston Hospital to do the morning shift and meet the doctors, and then I'd go to NBC, and my sister and my mother would go to Emerson Hospital to be with my dad for the afternoon night shift. And I don't know how we did it. Honest to God, I don't know how. Um, but I was a lot younger, and where there's a will, there's a way. I wish I could tell your listeners, and I wish they could tell me, because it's the same question we all have. How the hell did we do it? You know, and do it and do it again. I mean, I was I was fortunate. I was making a good salary, so I had some child care. Um, but I tried to be, I mean, I tried to be all things to all people, and uh, and that broke down mightily from time to time. But there are other times. I don't call it vitamins, call it caffeine, anything you want. I, you know, you do it. Passion, commitment. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. So, Gail, do you want to ask our our tried uh, and true question? Yes, Carol. So, what do you think about your own aging? Well, do you, Gail? Let me start with when I turned. I didn't like turning forty. I don't like any of the zero ages at all. Um, but I managed with forty and 50, and even 60. 
When I hit 70, I think there were about two full years before I could even say the seven number. You know, I hated it. And and yet I didn't feel 70, whatever 70 is supposed to feel like. I turned 75 on October 10th uh, of this year. And, you know, I'd like to tell you that I have fully embraced it. But I uh, I watched a replay of the piece I did on uh, Channel 11 last night. I thought, oh, God, let's get this space off TV. <laughs> you know, it. so the... I don't know any of us who is thrilled uh, with what comes with age and skin and all those things, but it's it's better than the uh, the other possibility, as we all say. Right. So, what's next for you? Are you you have another horizon, another venture in mind? Um, a couple actually. Um, so. We're continuing at DePaul, um, but at at some point, we'll turn that over to somebody newer and younger and uh, energetic and, and with some new ideas because, you know, you can always stay too long places. Uh, one, of, uh, one of our students last night said, as we were driving back from Channel 11, do you, do you really still get excited about being on television? And I, I almost wanted to lie and say, yes, I do. But the answer is no, I don't. Uh, I left broadcasting in 2020 uh, at the end of the, uh, the presidential campaign of 2020. It seemed like a really good punctuation mark. And I was ready to, um, to stop doing broadcasting and start devoting myself to teaching it. Um, and... I, I'd like to do some more writing. I haven't done a lot of writing in a while, uh, and uh, Don and I have a couple of books that are they're boxes of documents and uh, scribbled parts of manuscripts that we would like to put together on a couple of stories that we care a lot about. So there's always, you know, there's always something. I went to Paris in October, and that was great. Uh, I ride horses, and I want to keep riding horses, and I cook a lot. So I want. Mm. You know, I have a ton of things I love to do, and I have family I love to do it with, and and friends that sustain me. So there's there's plenty out there for me. Um, and sometimes still just organizing it. You know? <laughs> I sometimes say it's too much of a good thing. It really, it's the truth. It really is the truth. That's great. Well, Carol, thank you so much for for talking with us and spending time and allowing us to share your story with the the wider public. So, well, you made it so easy, and you you know. So, thank you very much for for uh, guiding this conversation and and making it a pleasure. Oh, thank you. It was our pleasure. <laughs> And listeners, thank you for your loyalty. Because of you, our numbers are growing all across the country and overseas. But this is a good thing. Still, we need more subscribers and reviews on Apple Play and YouTube. So support women over 70 and let your voice be heard. 
and help us change the conversation about women aging.